Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We always talk about, you know, beasts of roles like Ava Perone or Elphaba, yeah. you know, the, that are so taxing to do eight times a week. But does anybody scream and jump up and down more in a musical than Max Bialystok? <laughs> I'm telling you, you know, and I mean, I'm sure your listeners know, but towards the end of the show is one of the, the most mammoth songs in musical theater. I mean, yeah. it's not Rose's turn, but it's almost there. It, you know, but it's, it's it's certainly trying to be. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, a, it's a six minute song that recaps the entire musical and, and doesn't stop. And I was so, so relieved when I got through it. And I heard my cast off stage just hooping and hollering. Aww. And then I turned up stage and the curtain rose and we were in the courtroom. I thought, there's 20 fucking minutes left to this show. <laughs> We're not There's, even close to being done. How can there be more? <laughs> 11 o'clock number, baby. That's that's the yeah. quintessential 11 o'clock number. No, this one comes at 1030. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are discussing the musical The Producers, which was a listener request by someone I couldn't find in my notes, but I know it was requested because it was on the list, and I am sorry to this man. Here to talk about this romp of a musical with me are the writers of a new book that is just flying off the shelves. I was going to say literally flying off the shelves, but that doesn't make any sense. It is flying off the shelves, though. Veteran actor Michael Kostroff has a long history with the producers and, and even wrote a different book, right, Michael? About yeah. his many, your many travels with the show. But for this latest book, he's teamed up with another terrific performer, Julie Garnier, who was seen in the national tour of Come From Away. Uh, she's a, a lifelong Grizabella. How old were you when you first did Grizabella, Julie? 14. 26. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Comedy's already started. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, but like you were a young Grizz for sure. I was a young Grizz. Yeah. That, that's amazing. Uh, but together, they have created the Stage Actors Handbook, which I've read and is such a great resource for teaching the culture of creating theater. Um, it's, it's really kind of exploring how theater gets done uh, in a way that introduces young artists into things that sometimes only veterans understand. Yeah. 
we wrote it because we were appalled. We were appalled that it didn't exist. You know, we just we were we were appalled. What what do, what do you mean? There's no stage actors handbook. So we wrote it. it. No, it's so true. And and I I've always thought that theater was a, a veterans art form because there is just so much that uh, is collected from experience. But there are ways that we can help <laughs> young people well, we used to, get there quicker. So, you know what I? Mean? We used we used to call them the unwritten rules. Now they're written. And now they're so. written. It's amazing. Anyway. <laughs> Everyone, please welcome the incredible Michael Kostroff and Julie Garnier. Yay! We're, we're, we're taking a bow. Just, just imagine. We are. Absolutely. Which is in the book, How One yes, Takes a that's Bow. Right. It's in the book. Michael, talk to me briefly about your relationship to the producers. When did you enter into this zany world? I, uh, the first national tour. I, okay. I, uh, I was living in LA, which is what you do if you want to get a New York show, <clears throat> because wherever you move, wherever you move, the work comes up someplace else. And my LA agent said well, they want to see you for the producers in New York, and I was like, ah, "That's amazing!" And I, I flew in for the audition. It was an odd thing because I, I think they thought I was fancier than I was because they were only seeing me for Max. Oh, you know, they're like he, he they wouldn't pull... possibly do anything other right, than the right. star. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to be in the room with Mel Brooks and Susan Strong. You know, amazing. Yeah. And I remember after my final callback, the casting director pulled me out in the hall. He said, now, would you only accept Max? I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> I, oh, well, I would be stunned and thrilled to do anything you wanted the producers. And he was like, oh, that's a good answer. Next day, I was offered the ensemble covering Max and Roger Debris, and I was thrilled. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah, and it was it was a great job. I mean, the ensemble in that show is great. You, know, you can play like 12, 12 roles a night, well, and all all funny roles. Yeah, go ahead. Isn't, no, that's so true. Because uh, I was thinking yesterday about how the ensemble of the producers really makes or breaks the a production for me, because you have yeah. to be singer, dancer, actor, comedian. Actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you have to, you have to understand that language, that comedy language. Well, in retrospect, you know, of course, at the time I was like, "What do you mean they offered it to me?" I was, I was, I was shocked. But in retrospect, to have a Max Bialystok cover who can dance—that's mm. that's a small category. Like you have to really be able to dance to be in the ensemble. That's so cool. So, yeah, that's where it all started. And now I've done seven productions of the show. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> Amazing. And while you were touring with the producers, is when you wrote your book, Letters from backstage right backstage yes yeah well uh, yes and no I, I I wanted to bring my friends along with me so I mm. started sending them these chronicles you know that were just just emails you know oh, and cute. people started sharing them with their friends and it grew this readership and I was like oh yeah I'm just taking people along on the journey and people were like oh you should make this a book I'm like shut up nobody wants to read this <laughs> and finally a friend you know under pain of death said you have to submit some book proposals and I was like okay fine and then a, a, a publisher called and said, we want to publish your book. I'm like, what book? What book? <laughs> so I never intended for it to be a book. But I think that's why it has a certain intimacy about it. People always say, like, I feel like I'm one of your friends coming along on tour. And that's what I love. It's like giving mm -hmm. people sort of the virtual written experience of being on tour and in hotels and backstage and things going wrong and, and just the different towns that we visited. It's kind of, I love taking people on that journey because it was an extraordinary adventure. So then how did this new book come about? Um, I like when Julie tells the story because she tells it much better than I do. Julie, go. <laughs> I want to hear it. <laughs> Julie, how did this book come about? Well, I was in New York 
uh, I'd flown in. I also live in Los Angeles and I had flown in for a callback. And whenever I fly into town, the first person that I would call was Michael Kostroff, uh, because we always try to plan to do a brunch at our local diner that we love. So, um, <laughs> we, so we met at the diner. Yeah. Uh, Utopia diner on 71st and Amsterdam. And we were just having our normal catch up conversation. And Michael mentioned that he had had this idea for a book, but he wasn't going to write it. He's he'd at that point <laughs> written three books and he's oh, like, I'm done writing books. Books are not happening anymore. I'm not going to write this no. book. And I was like, oh, I mean, okay, I have well, what's heard, the idea? I feel like every time I, I listen to some celebrity who's like writing a book, they're like, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. I'm never doing it. It's again. hard work. It's not lucrative. And, it, and it's not like, you know, it, you have to, no, you have to, you have to. Honestly, it's it has to be an act of love. I'm not kidding because mm. it's it's there's no other reason to do it. You know, like yeah, hundred percent. Anyway, 100%. so what happened then, Julie? Julie, what happened? <laughs> so, so then breath. what happened was I said, Michael, tell me this idea that you have. Um, I think we had both had also maybe recently done shows where there were people in the cast who mm. didn't quite understand the etiquette, the protocols, the our traditions, yes. our the superstitions, right. the do's and don'ts of just being a professional in the theater. Mm -hmm. And he said, I, I looked, there's no, you know, I, I think what Michael wanted to do was buy a book and leave it on their dressing room table, but that yes. there wasn't a book. To do that, happy there, opening. Here's exist. your book. Yeah, yeah happy Here's opening. Your These book. are the rules. Read it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For next time, so other people don't have to go through. No. Uh, but anyway, so we started mapping out different topics on a napkin, and Michael just kept saying, "I don't know why we're doing this. We're not going to write this book." And I said, "Look, if you if you want to write this book, if you think this book should be in existence, I'll do it with you." And then I promptly booked the national tour of Come From Away and left town. And so Which, it was speaking uh, of a, a difficult very... show, uh, learning how many oh, yeah. freaking oh, tracks. Yeah. So like the the amount of yeah, brain space I was a standby. is limited. Exactly. It was a challenging year uh, for my brain. And there was no way I was going to be writing a book while I was on tour with Come From Away. I think, but, I, and I think um, it kind of went on and off the shelf a few times for us, I believe, because then did. I got... The Les Mis tour. I, I don't remember when this conversation happened, but it kept going onto the shelf. But I, but I kept. I took a photo of Michael in Utopia Diner holding up the napkin, which I still have. It's Aww. one of my favorite photos in the history of photos that I've taken. It just makes me smile every time I see it. And so after uh, I left, come from away in October of 2019. Very shortly after that, a pandemic seemed to happen, mm. and Michael called me and he said, "So this book. It seems we have a little bit of time on our hands and." <laughs> I was in California. He was in New York City on the Upper West Side. And I said, let's do this. And so we started writing the book via Zoom together. And now and, it's a, and a big a part thing. of it. I have uh, to say, you know, a big part of this collaboration was like, what are we including? What are we not including? And we, we really decided it's it's from first rehearsal to final curtain. It's not about auditioning. It's not about acting. It's not about anything else mm. except how to behave, like how to show up the first day and not embarrass yourself and how to not step on toes and, and who does what and what things mean, what certain phrases mean that you, you know, so you don't have to embarrass yourself by asking and certain mistakes that God, we've all made. Mm. You know, uh, I mean, I, I remember very grandly telling telling a stage manager, I only take notes from the director. And, and, and some, a, an older actor pulled me aside and said, yeah, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> <It's> like, 
so, you know, so, so I mean, the, the, one of the hardest things I want, and it's one of our favorite sections now is, is, you know, when, when you see something that's either disorganized or incorrect in rehearsal and you know, you can fix it and you, you know, you can help learning to shut up in that moment and stay in your lane and not do that because it's never well received. Even if you're right, if you're the person who goes, Oh, Hey, I, I have a question. I'm singing an A flat, but it sounds like everybody else is singing an A. Which one is it? Yeah. You're obviously trying to correct your cast. It's like, oh it's so gosh. transparent. Just your reaction, I, Jeff. It just look, you've done it. You've, you've heard it. You've done it. Like I think Jeff we've has all, done it. I have absolutely <laughs> done that. Are you kidding right. me? Um, can we do this again? Because there are some people who are <laughs> right, right. I'm, I'm stepping with their I, right I, I, and some. I must their... have it wrong. I must have it wrong. I'm seeing oh the notes on yes. the page. It must yeah. be me. So that's really <laughs> what the book is about. And you know, we wrote it in a very, uh, a very serious. Um, I don't mean overly serious, but I mean it's it's designed to be the quintessential guide to this stuff. It is protocols. It's not jokes. It's not opinions. It's this is how we do it. Uh, this is what comes after this, and what to expect also. Oh, and then we started reaching out to big celebrities, like huge, huge, legendary Broadway uh, theater folks, to see if they wanted to share their thoughts on this this stuff. And we got a quote from you know from. Cheetah Rivera and from Alfred Molina and John Lithgow. And, and, Sir Patrick and, and Stewart. A little guy named Sir Patrick Stewart. Oh, you and know. who wrote our foreword? Oh, Jeff Daniels. Jeff Daniels. He wrote the foreword in his dressing room between mm -hmm. shows at Mockingbird. Right. He, and, we, and, Michael dropped off a, a manuscript of the book to the stage door. And within a couple of days, we had the forward to the book. He was so enamored with the idea of this and with the book itself, he had to write the forward. It's... And they wrote beautiful stuff. I mean, you know, it's not them writing like endorsements. They're writing, this is what you got to know, guys. Like, mm -hmm. I love what Alfred Molina said, you know, when you move from the rehearsal hall to the theater, it's all going to go to shit. Just know that, <laughs> you know, like that. And that's it's like true. Little... It's true. Don't right. freak out. Don't get yeah. mad at anybody. But I love that it's a kind of it's a kind of nuanced stuff, you know. I love Ken Page writing about you know the the what is it called the after after the show closes blues, mm. you know that that weird thing that happens when the show's over and you're like, oh despair, yeah. you know. And I, I just love that they contributed those thoughts to it. It's so readable too. If Thank I'm being honest about like my my judgy brain going into it, I had two worries. Number one, that it was going to feel elitist and white. Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. theater tends to be that way. And the other one was that I was afraid it was going to be a little preachy. And if anything, Listen. it's giving us all a piece of humble pie and reminding us how beautiful the collaboration process is and how much humility it takes. Listen, I, you know, again, the process of writing a book is major. We took a retreat together where we culled through the whole thing. And one of the, we went, oh my God, we've made, made everything sound dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh. Remember? Remember? We laughed at our, we, Julie, yes. Julie, it's like, how many things can kill you in the theater? We have to really, <laughs> you know, and, and you don't realize until you, you read the whole thing die. together. Yeah. Everything like, is like safety and be careful. And <laughs> yeah, yes, right. extremely dangerous. And we were like, okay, we've got to calm this down. All right. Calm like, down. Uh, so, you know, we, we really we culled it out. to make sure that it wasn't like, you know, you're a bad person if you do. You know, mm. it's we we chose our battles. There are certain things that are really like, you know, you don't give a fellow actor a note. Period. 
End of story. End of story. It's, it's, that, and I think we both feel strongly that whether or not you're superstitious, you honor our superstitions as part of the tradition. Mm. So there are certain things that were like, don't do that. Yeah, the tone the tone of the book was very important to us. It, a, it, we didn't want it to tone. feel like we were telling you exactly how things should be done, mm -hmm. but we were also telling you, hey, exactly, exactly how, how things should be done. <laughs> you know, but I think I, I mean, and Julie, I don't know if you felt the same as I did. I'm curious about this, but I, you know, when when it was released to the world, I sort of held my breath. Oh, because I was my, so scared. <laughs> I mean, my biggest concern was folks like you, Jeff, like our colleagues. I wanted it to land properly with them. I wanted them to go, yep, this is this is nailing it. This is the right book. This is the book. Just because I, yeah, we, I didn't want it to sound like any of those things you were describing. And I'm, you know, the, the most gratifying thing has been professors going, yes, this is the book I want to teach my classes. And actors who I admire who have far more stage credits than I going, yep, that's it. That's the book. Mm. I was uh, rehearsing a concert in New York that was going to be performed in California, and my my singing partner was in New York, and so I had to fly there to rehearse my duet with her. And that was the day that uh, something really big went down on Broadway with the 1776 Vulture article. Yeah, and no. I walked into the rehearsal hall with her waving my book over her head, yelling, "Everyone in that building needs a copy of this book," <laughs> and I was like. Oh my God, that's my book. But and she's also, like, everyone needs to read read this because you that's know. That's what we were hoping it, to do. You know. That's what we were hoping wow. to do, and it just it, this woman is someone who's been on Broadway, who's created many, many roles, and you it drop just. Her name. What is oh, Clea Blackhurst. Clea Blackhurst. Come on, I love Clea. You so much. Friend of the podcast. <laughs> Oh, yay. Yeah. Anyway, it's uh, you can tell we're excited about it. It's you know uh, we make Absolutely. a nickel. That's not the point, you know. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think we haven't seen any money yet. We have we seen have no not money seen yet. It. Uh, we have not seen no money yet. Oh, <laughs> the book but, came but, out in July but, last year. Having it out there in the world is so gratifying and going because, like, I think you said this. Like, mentorship is such an important part of our tradition. Going here, let's light the path for you. Let's pass this along and passing that down. And in fact, we talked. We our, our our final chapter is about the stage actor's legacy, and part of that is mentorship passing the torch, sharing what you've learned, you know, and that's, it, it is embedded in our, in our secret little culture. Hey listeners, have you tried Factor yet? Remember Factor Meals? They were supposed to send me a box to try out, but they don't ship to Hawaii. So now I'm stuck with my Taco Bell and now it's up to you. It's up to you to try it and let me know how it is because it's May and we can't eat like it's the holidays anymore. We're trying to get our summer bodies together and Factors Fresh Never Frozen Meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting food. You can choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, whatever you want, it's here. Head to factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50, that's musical theater with an E-R, and use code musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code musicaltheater50 at factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, if the stage actor's handbook is really kind of the how to do theater right, um, the producers, or at least the plot of the producers, is like the how to not do theater <laughs> correctly. And that's also why it's a love letter in a way, because yeah. it's perfectly spoofing this art form that we love in that yes. you can you can feel how much heart is behind it. And I think that that is a, a lot to do with Mel Brooks, a lot to do with Susan Stroman. But let's talk about a few of the creators that went into this show, starting number one with Mr. Mel Brooks. I think this is the first time we're like diving into him on the podcast yeah. and Born Melvin Kaminsky on June 28th, 1926. That makes him a spry 96 years old at this point. Uh, famous actor, comedian, filmmaker. He grew up very poor. The story that he always tells is that he was literally born on the kitchen table, right? Yeah. And had a, a rough childhood. Father died young, I believe. He was very small and kind of underdeveloped, was uh, bullied a lot. So, of course, what do you do with all that angst and, and darkness? You, you go into comedy. <laughs> and at 14, he was working at a hotel and he meets an 18-year-old Sid Caesar. Like, what? How is this even possible? <laughs> of course, those who listened to our Little Me episode remember us talking about Sid Caesar. And that relationship continued when Sid Caesar got his show and, and Mel Brooks became one of his writers. As he grows up, he sticks with TV and film and eventually becomes this filmmaker with a very distinct language, a very distinct <laughs> film language. And that yes. that's very unusual. Like I can, I, There are few individuals like him who have such a stamp on culture in the way that Mel Brooks does. So the film version of The Producers comes out in the 1960s. Is that right? Am I getting that correctly? I don't know. Yeah, that, that, right yeah, that, has, that must be right. <laughs> yeah. I'm not the historian, but I think but it, it, it's definitely the 60s. And he wins an Academy Award for a screenplay. It's a brilliant screenplay. And that kind of fuels many of his projects. Now, question to either of you. Do you have favorite Mel Brooks films? And does this, com this sense of comedy really connect with you? I feel like... Without knowing it, Mel Brooks trained me for the producers from the time I was a little guy because mm. I grew up listening to, to a series of recordings called The 2,000-Year-Old Man uh, yes. that were mostly improvised in which Carl Reiner interviewed Mel Brooks playing a 2,000-year-old man. And, uh, you know, not everybody knows that Mel Brooks was a drummer and rhythm is a very big part of his comedy. Oof. And I think that got infused in me. So I walk, when I walked into audition for Max Bialystok, it fit like an old suit. Even mm. though I was nervous and I was in front, you know, in front of these big Broadway people, I'm like, I know this language. This is yeah. exactly what he taught me. He taught me how to do it. You know, just certain techniques like, like a disproportionate reaction. Something huge happens and somebody goes, eh, or something <laughs> small happens and somebody has an enormous reaction. Mm. So I, I feel like he... Yes, do I connect? Yeah, absolutely. It was it was sort of my, you know, one of my biggest comedic influences. I have favorites for different reasons. I really like uh, a film that that he didn't actually write, which is Young Frankenstein. He directed Young Frankenstein. And he didn't I think write it. I didn't know that. No, no, Gene Wilder did, and I and it's oh, about as good as it gets. Yeah. Um, that little side story. I, I recently hosted a tribute to Mel Brooks at Fifty Four Below, so I, I learned some some interesting things. Wow. They had a big. They had one fight in their entire relationship. Gene Wilder was, and Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks. 
And it was because Mel Brooks did not think the putting on the Ritz scene would be funny. He's like, it's not funny. It's not funny. And Gene Wilder said, I insist. I insist. He goes, no, no, no. And finally, Mel says, okay, I'll tell you what. We're going to film it. And at the preview, if one person says it stinks, it's out. Well, needless to say, people fell on their floor. It's like everybody's favorite no, scene a, from the movie. The and he went back to him and he said, he said, I was wrong, which you don't hear a lot from Mel Brooks, who doesn't tend to suffer from low self-esteem ever. <laughs> and he, and he, said, he, said, he said, I was wrong. But uh, I think probably high anxiety. I, I um, Well, Madeline Kahn, you, come on. Yeah, so I mean, you might, be, you might be surprised to learn that the, the sort of like fart jokes and stuff is not, that's not my thing. I, mm-hmm. I like it a little more brainy than that. So not not all of Mel Brooks's stuff is my favorite. I, mm-hmm. uh, when it's crass, you know, I get a little prissy. I'm a little Felix Unger there. But um, <laughs> I love high anxiety. Oh, well, I also love To Be or Not To Be. That's a, I think that's one that's, that's underappreciated. Good, that's a great film. With his wife Anne Bancroft. Yep, and it's got a lot of, it's got a lot of sadness to it. It's a brilliant movie. Yeah, yeah. and my one of my dearest mentors, Louis J. Stadlin, is in it. So that's another oh reason why. Oh my gosh, I love another yeah. someone who just innately understands comedy. How cool! Genius. Yeah. So, Julie. Well, okay. So uh, there's, there's the sentimental favorite, and is... then there is well, uh, History of the World Part One. Oh. Um, because it was the it was the first time I'd seen a Mel Brooks movie. It was my first Mel Brooks movie, so sentimentally, I'm very very t- attached to it. And just getting introduced to all of his players, Harvey Corman and Madeline Kahn, of mm. course, and mm. Dom DeLuise, and just you know all of the people that were in that cast, it was bonkers. And then, uh, but I just think that some of the best work. Uh, is high anxiety. I agree. I, I just oh, loved, I love yeah. high anxiety, but yeah, sentimentally history of the world part one. I just, yeah. And you know what I didn't realize is so many of his films are tributes. I didn't really quite clock that, mm. but it, they're love letters to, to Alfred Hitchcock and to, to, yes. to spaghetti to Westerns. Westerns. And yep. to, yeah. Which is why I think that the producers is inevitable because he is so yeah. good at writing these love letters that he has created a musical that is a love letter to musical theater. And not to mention that he always had musical numbers in his movies, which I believe he wrote, didn't I mean, he wrote Springtime for Hitler when the producers yes. first came out. And so he's an experienced songwriter. Not to mention the tradition of Yiddish theater is so ingrained and so essential to our musical theater art form. So it really is just this perfect match that it felt like his works were always going to become staged musicals. Now he didn't, he originally did not plan on writing the score for the producers. Do you know this story? Yeah. He approached Jerry Herman. Did he not? Yeah. He went to Jerry Herman. He said, you know, I've written songs, but I've, you know, I've never written on an entire score. I, I think it should be done properly. And Jerry Herman said, you know, I'm not exactly the right person for this, but I know who, uh, the perfect person to write this. Let, can I play you some of his songs? And Mel said, yeah. So he goes over to the piano and he plays Springtime for Hitler. <laughs> and then he plays, you know, and he, he plays all, the, all these Mel Brooks. Play. He goes, I wrote that. He goes, exactly. You're the only person who can write this musical and mm. you should write all the songs. And he did. And he did. And, and they're brilliant. I was going through the cast album uh, last night and this morning it's a really strong score. Like every single song is is just a joy. From what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, the show kind of goes into development in the late 90s and he approaches Mike Ockrent and Susan Stroman to oversee it. Now, of course, Susan Stroman's husband, Mike Ockrent, passes away, I think, in 99. 
And so uh, she decides to continue on with the work, but as director and choreographer. So I had to persuade her. She was she was really not not up to it. And they said, you have to do it. It's time to stop crying. You got to just do it. <laughs> oh, my yeah, gosh. Seriously. No, they, they I mean, they had to have sort of a, 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 an, intervention. Like an intervention. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what a uh, show to, and... to just come back to. Right. Where you're just laughing, laughing, laughing. Yes. Oh, cool. But even though it, it started then, it, it really doesn't come out until what, 2001? I think it was before that because I believe I went on tour with the, with oh. the first national in 2001. It opened at the St. James on April 19th, 2001. So oh. right before 9 11. I, yeah, I saw that. I actually was in rehearsal for Cats at the time and I saw the final preview. Oh, wow. Before opening night, I was there, the final preview. I was there wow. in New York Times. It was New York Times night. Oh so the gosh. New York Times uh, was there to review it. Wow. That's yeah. fascinating. So everybody was, was, everything was heightened. Like you could feel the electricity in the room. Everyone was sure. on their game because they knew that the New York Times was in the in the house. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. Yeah. This original production really did have so much electricity behind it not only because of the fame of the the source material which of course was you know this legendary film and the creative team but also with two mega stars in Nathan yes. Lane and Matthew Broderick and because you've played Max what are your feelings about what these two did for the show you know it was important to have two guys of their caliber because they were really reinventing it i mean the, 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 they they really expanded the plot took it in all kinds of wonderful new places which you had to do for a musical you mm -hmm. know to, to make it a full musical uh not to mention katie huffman by the way who is uh, i think a very underrated performer she's an extraordinary triple threat mm. extraordinary and, and comic chops i mean i've worked with her she's she's insanely good and i, I mm. think i think she has not really gotten her due but um, it was very important that that it wasn't somebody trying to do an impersonation of the two, you know, the two film guys, and they really brought their own stamp to it. Also, Roger Bart, my God, you oh know, my Gary Beach, also you know, Gary all Beach. of those guys, yeah, Gary Beach, my God. Uh, so it made a new template for what that what that show is, you know, for what that story is, and I, I. I you know, I, I'm of the steel from the best camp, and I, I, I stole everything <laughs> I could, not only from Nathan Lane, but from Lou Stadlin, who was my Max Bialystok. I, I stole everything. In fact, I just want to brag about Lou Stadlin, who's one, I, he's just, I, I adore him. He would pull me aside backstage. He said, You know what I figured out on this scene? You don't have to do this. You could just let them drive it. Like he was telling me how to pace myself through the performance. He was telling me how to land land certain jokes. He goes, I just figured this out. And wow. he's like really took care of me as his understudy. Oh, yeah. That's beautiful. Once again, yeah. like the mentorship of of that. Yes. I will say that nothing prepares you for going on for the first time as Max Bialystok. <laughs> because it's three hours on stage. You're almost never off stage. It's singing, dancing, yelling, screaming, flipping out. It's so much information, so many words, so many steps, so much choreography. And, you know, uh, nothing prepares you for it except the, the t terror that says you cannot fail. There's no room for failure because the sh people are paying a bunch of money to come see this thing and it's not going down on my watch. The producers, needless to say, becomes a mammoth hit. It uh, thanks to ran... Julie being there the night that the Times was there. That's why. That's why. Thank you, Julie, for really bringing the uh, electricity to that performance. My pleasure. It's yeah. my duty for the theater. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It 
famously wins more Tony Awards than any musical in theater history. And I like got to tell you, it's never going to be broken. It was held by Hello, Dolly, speaking of Jerry Herman, for many, 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 many years. And then the producers won 12 Tony Awards. And like if Hamilton couldn't break it, like nobody is going to break oh that record. Yeah. You know? Uh, Mel Brooks very famously pissed off everybody at the Tony Awards by accepting one of the Tonys and saying like, I'll see you later because he knew that he was going to be winning more and later in the night. Um, as which I, is, as I think he does not suffer from low self-esteem and I don't think 12 <laughs> Tonys uh, uh, changed that. <laughs> but it's comedy. What do you want? The show runs for uh, over 2,500 performances and Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick came back. Like they, they broke the box office record for like most tickets sold at the beginning of the run. And then they came back into the run kind of later on and broke the record again by coming back into the show. So like the star power of this musical, mm. but I, it certainly has succeeded without them. I, I've seen so many productions of this. All Okay. I know of a production that was, that tried to be less Mel Brooks. Mm. Like they wanted to play the comedy in a different way. Do you think you can do this show without just fully embracing the Mel Brooks of it all? No, it's, you know, if, if you try to make it politically correct, you kill it. I mean, in fact, they tried to change one word when we went out of town on the road. There's a joke when, you know, there's a, lo- it's a long buildup, but Max is talking about his mentor. He quotes him in Yiddish. He goes, I don't know what, what he's saying, but he was saying, I think what he's saying, when you're down and out, that's when you have to stand up on your own two feet and shout, who do you have to fuck to get a break in this town? Well, they were nervous that people would be offended by that one thing in the producers. So they changed <laughs> That's it the to, thing you're going to be upset right. about. <laughs> so they changed the Yiddish word for fuck, which is shtup. And the review came out and they said, oh, what? You think we're too sensitive for the word fuck? And it went right back in. Wow. Yeah, it's, That's it's, interesting. It's the wrong show to do if you're trying to avoid offense. Yeah. You know, it's just the wrong Amen. show. That's because uh, um, it's... It's got racial stereotypes, gender, you know, sexual stereotypes. It's got something for everybody to be offended by. Well, and I was even thinking about how I can get a little sensitive about the keep a gay number, just like when I'm in my feelings and thinking about things. Mm-hmm. But then I listened to it. Like I said, I was going through the cast album and I was listening to it. And I'll be darned if it didn't completely win me over when they're like, life is better when it's a little bit gay. I'm like, yes, it is. Yeah. You are well, see- right. Like even if you weren't making fun of this and you were taking it literally, I would, I would, I would be a, a part of this wholeheartedly. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I want to just, I want to just unpack that for a moment because that number does not make fun of gay people. It makes fun of a director who thinks that he should apply gayness to every story, including Oedipus, including you know Shakespeare's Absolutely. classics, and it's it's about how bad that director is. That's right. what that's the comedy comes from. That you know, uh, and. Those folks are plenty out, which is kind of unusual for the time. So, mm-hmm. I, so it's you know I don't believe that number makes fun of gay people in any way. I mean, I I, I went on a few times as Roger Debris, and I always said it's very very funny that he's really really femmy. It's also funny that he thinks he's a visionary that can only do the play if he is inspired by it. And it's like that that's that's part of what's funny is he's terrible. He's just yeah. untalented. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's what I think that's what it's really funny funny about that number. Well, we you know? had just we just did a, a Shrek episode, and we were talking about like why it's okay to m- make fun of Farquaad because he's short, but it's not okay to make fun of like the other fairy tale creatures for being quote unquote freaks. And it's the delusion of it all. 
the delusion yes. is yes. what helps us realize the ridiculousness of it. And, and there's nobody more delusional than, than the amazing Roger Debris. <laughs> yeah. I only went on twice as Roger. We had a wonderful Roger cover, Kevin Lingan. He's brilliant. I never thought I was going to go on, which was fine with me. I love playing Max. And then Kevin was injured. I had given my notice. And then Kevin got injured. And, and Gary Beef put in for two days off. I was like, oh my uh, my stage manager was like, guess what? You're Roger. So oh, my I, gosh. Terrifying. Uh, I got to be Roger Debris at the, at the, at the Pantages theater in LA. Oh, Amazing. gosh. My gosh. Were you it. corseted? I must know. No, okay. no. I, I, that dress is so like, has so much boning. I wasn't <laughs> sure if there was a corset underneath. The dress is, is that, first of all, okay. So the dress cost like $10,000. They said, do you want us to build you your own? I'm like, no, God, no. So I wore, I wore uh, Leroy, Leroy Reams' dress, which fit perfectly. And, but it is built in such a way that it holds you up and you don't, it doesn't weigh you down. It's a, kind of an amazing, you know, work of engineering. Anyway, I'm sure your listeners don't care about how the dress was built, but you know. Are it's... you kidding me? This is literally called a musical theater podcast, my friend. Well, I'll tell you, the costumer came up to me. He said, I know that you're nervous about going on for the first time, but here's what you cannot forget. Land and swoop. You got to land <laughs> and swoop that dress behind you or you're going to trip. This, he's like, you cannot forget this. You make a cross, you land, swoop that motherfucker behind you because you're going to fall <laughs> if you don't. I'm telling you, I landed and swooped for all I was worth. You're like, you want to see some landing and swooping, I'll give Watch it to you. Watch the landing and swooping. Watch it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. All right. A tradition here on the show is that we go through the show, right? And talk through beats and and kind of give people a, a, a feeling of the story in case they haven't seen it so that they get excited to do so. It's almost nearly impossible to do this with comedies that are farcical and complex. So I don't know if we will go through beat by beat like we usually do. However, I would love to just kind of give a brief outline of the show and Whenever anybody has a, a moment of a favorite line or favorite song, by all means, I want to hear it. Yeah. Okay. okay. So the the show begins on an opening night of Mac, of Max Bialystok's latest show, right? Will it flop or will it go? Musical is funny, boy. It's a musical about Hamlet. <laughs> and of course, the uh, all of the audience comes out of the theater and they announce that it's the worst show in town. So then we meet Max Bialystok, and how how would you describe this dude? Max is a a, a, a former success, I suppose. Uh, uh, he's a he's a down on his luck producer. Uh, he doesn't know what's gone wrong, but he's 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 he really thought that Funny Boy was going to be a hit, and, and now people hate him and they want to destroy him. Now, what I love about the producers is that every character that we, every main character, every lead character that we come in contact with, actually, no, I'm going to change that. Every character that we come in contact with has an amazing song to introduce themselves. Yeah, I mean... Uh, and, of, of the lead roles, yes. Yeah, I be, but I mean, even like these side characters, Kevin, <laughs> it's yeah. a great introduction, right? But like every character has their own I want song. Usually we get one I want song, and, and we have so many in this, in this show. We get to see the inner worlds of all of these zany zany people the first one of course being max bialystok and i can think of no better introduction to this man than the king of broadway which is, shows him to be crass 
and hilarious and deceitful and delusional and, and also desperate. charming in and a charming. weird way. You know? <laughs> and, des- and desperate. Let's not oh, forget des- desperate. Yeah, desperation probably. He of reeks of desperation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if this show only had The King of Broadway and all of the one-liners in it, I would say it's a comedic masterpiece, right? Between the, uh, what, are, what are some of them? The, um, you heard of Theater in the Round? <laughs> You're looking at the man who invented Theater in the Square. Nobody had a good seat. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that line. That line is so fantastic. <laughs> uh, the, I'm, I'm the first producer ever to do summer stock in the winter. <laughs> I love that whole thing. That, that whole, whole thing. thing is, and it's just like, and it, it's kind of reminiscent of the Music Man because all of these, you know, ensemble members are around him going like, trouble, 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 <laughs> trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's just it's such a great introduction to him. Of course, the, the very famous line, because you talked about it. The, <laughs> to, Who do you have to, to fuck to get a break in this town? Exactly. Which, of course... <laughs> Once I found out that Harvey Weinstein was a, a producer on the show originally, it rings a little different now. Oh, yeah. But yeah. also a hilarious line. So Max Bialystok, his show is Funny Boy is failing. He has to have an accountant come in and look at the books. It turns out he raised, what, like $100,000 for a play that only cost 98000 Right. And so this accountant, Leo Bloom, who comes in, is like, uh-oh, discrepancy. And Max is like, please, 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 just bury it. I can't. I'm, <laughs> right. I'm desperate. And uh, yeah, so he, says, he, he says, just move the decimal points around. Yeah, you can do it. You can do it. Yeah, move a few decimal points around. Yeah. And Leo Bloom, who is what? He's a, he's a nervous fellow. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'd say. Riddled I, I, with anxiety, but. Yeah, I think he, he has a, a real social problems. Like he doesn't like to leave the house kind of social problems. They're really Oh, bad. sure. Yeah. Uh, he has like kind of a blanky, uh, Linus yeah, blanky situation as, yeah. an, as, an, yeah. <laughs> as a full grown. <laughs> and, but he does agree. And then just off the cuff says, you know, it's kind of funny in the right circumstances, you could make more money with a flop than you could a hit. Right. And now all of a sudden, ding, light bulb moment for Max Bialystok, like literally light bulb moment. Who is better than at making a flop than I am? Yeah, right. right? Let's turn this deal into my biggest money maker yet. In order to do that, a bunch of crazy events happen, which is they have to find the worst musical. What, what what's kind of the list? Okay. Find the worst musical it's ever written. Step two: find the worst director in town. Step three: I, I, raised, I raised two million dollars. One for me, one for you. It's a lot of little old ladies in this town. Step four, hire the worst actors on New York and open on Broadway. And before you can say number five, we close on Broadway, take our two million and go to Rio. Oh, my gosh. Way to be off book, Michael Kostroff. That's impressive. Don't well, you I, learned it, I learned it as an understudy. So I, I, I still am in a state of constant terror that will have to go on. So, you know, when I do a production of the producer, this is an eerie thing. It doesn't matter how many years have gone by. When I go into rehearsals for the producers, I press play and I go. Like, I know all the words. It's scary. I'm like, That's surely crazy. I've forgotten these. And it's like, nope, comes right out. It's yeah. right back in there. It takes, takes like one rehearsal and I'm, I'm off book again. It's, uh, but that's because I learned it as an understudy. By the way, I was Kevin, the costume designer. When, you know, that Were was like, you? Yes. Yes. I, 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 I negotiated for that when I saw that purple suit. It was the one thing that I said to my <laughs> I, agents. I said, I, I want must. that to be part of that track. And <laughs> um, they built me a wig that went from my brown hair into a blonde swirl in the front. 
It was oh the best gosh. thing ever, and that That's purple fabulous. suit. And I decided to base Kevin on Snagglepuss, the gayest cartoon character <gasps> ever. Snagglepuss does not get enough love not enough. from our L- from our queer community. No, you are absolutely no. Right. And uh, Stage he only had he only had a few words, but mm-hmm. to this day, when people call me, they go, "Hello." <laughs> 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 it, it needs glitz. <laughs> Clamor, glitz even. <laughs> That's fantastic. All right, so they find their musical in a, a beautiful piece of literature <laughs> called Springtime for Hitler, a gay romp. Wait, I don't even, I can't even pronounce it. A gay romp German. with Ava and Adolf at Buchesgarten. Yeah, something yeah. like that. That and, wasn't my line. <laughs> <laughs> and it's written by an ex-Nazi by the name of Franz Liebkin. And so they have to go to this dude to like get him to... to and I think uh, not an ex-Nazi. Not okay. an ex- I think he's still waiting for it to come back, honestly. He's sort of ha- hanging out until he gets the next call. That, that's, that's a fair Just, point. Yeah, he's not an he's ex-Nazi. He's on guard. He's definitely nostalgic for the uh, good old days. <laughs> yes. And they have to prove to him that, you know, they are going to do good old Adolf Elizabeth Hitler justice (laughs) with their telling of the story. And they do. And there are dancing pigeons. And it's just absolutely Well, I mean, I I love that, you know, in musical theater logic, Franz Liebkin says the way that you must prove to me. (laughs) <laughs> that you are loyal to the Fuhrer is by singing and dancing the Fuhrer's favorite tune, the Guten Tag Hop Club. I mean, it's like, naturally. It's like, that's how you set up a number. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then they have to find the worst director. And of course, the worst director is Roger Debris. And Roger we already Debris. talked about him. What a, a glorious delusional man with a, with a dress that has to, you, you plant and swoop. You have to swoop. I, I do want to say, though, because I know that I'm talking to the people who literally wrote the handbook, working with strange personalities as directors is something that happens in the theater. Yeah. And certainly the more experienced you are with an act, as an actor, the more, shall we say, preferences you make about your working style and who you want to work with. So you're, you're bound to come across a director either that you disagree with or you feel like doesn't know what they're doing. What is the what is the right course yeah. of action for an actor at this point? What did you uh, guys find or write about? Well, you know, if Julie would stop dominating the conversation, I'm going to say, <laughs> Julie, will you please shut up? <laughs> I, um, I, I want to weigh in on this first because I think, you know, one of the mistakes that I've made over my career is thinking that I get to evaluate the director. I mean, uh, privately, I can evaluate the director, hmm. but. One of the hard, hard and very unpleasant lessons is whether the director is good or bad, he or she still wears the director hat. Mm. So they don't have to pass your test of talent, regardless of your opinion of their talent. It is always in our best interest to still respect them, follow their direction, and don't go around doing what we've all done backstage is going... Can you believe this guy? Can you believe this woman? She doesn't know what she's doing. Blah, 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 blah. It is a worthless exercise. And a lot of the things that we indulge in are just, look how right I am. Look how right I am. And ego, ego. They, don't, they do not lose their authority as director just because you think they're not good. And that's a tough one. That's Oof. a tough one. And here's the dividing line. The dividing line is abuse. If, you, if somebody is being abusive, and we have to be careful about not misinterpreting things as abuse, because mm-hmm. we do... But, I mean, overtly abusive. 
then I think you have a right to privately say, you know, I, I, I really can't work this way. I can't work with you if you're going to be this way. And, and so we could either find another way of working or I need to leave the production. And hmm. it's as simple as that. Julie, what do you think? Um, I totally agree with everything you've just said. and That's, why, to... that's why we're partners. <laughs> that's yes. why. I want to add to that, which is um, something that I didn't really understand or know until, you know, recent years, which is that this idea of self-care, mm. um, there, there's, there's a lot of different levels of what people think self-care is. You know, some people actually abuse that moniker and, and um, you know, oh, I, I need a beach day. That's self-care. That is not self-care. That's you're not doing your job. That's you not showing up to work. However, again, if, if you're finding that someone on the creative team is being abusive, you have every right to ask a stage manager to be present for any conversations that you have with that human being. Ooh, that's um, great. I, that's... Yeah, and that is in the book. Uh, that is something that's happened to both Michael and I at various mm-hmm. stages in our career. And it is really hard to go to management and say, hey, um, I don't feel comfortable with this person. And uh, I don't feel safe to do my work and to do it in a, in a way that I can feel free to be who I want to be and express what I want to express. You know, a lot of writing of the book has been Julie and I sitting down and going, okay, but what's, how do we really, really define this rule in a way that it encapsulates all the possible scenarios? You know, mm-hmm. it was interesting that along the way, I'll never forget, there was something that I wanted to put in the book that I'm like, this is a policy. And Julie's like, no, that's your policy. That's not a universal policy. Mm. I, I, don't, I don't accept comps. I, I don't believe in it. I want to always pay for theater. That's very nice, but you, but you, but I, but we couldn't you put can't in a book. Force everyone, to right? I couldn't put in a book that's like this is the stage actor's handbook. Don't take comps, you know. We did not put don't take comps. What we put in there right. was if you take comps, you must show up. That is that's common right. courtesy. That's, that is common decency. That is it. That's Bible. And then after yeah. that, that is it. you thank them for you that have experience. To. Yeah. That is that is common. Everyone should be doing that. If you if you get a comp <sighs> to a show, you show up. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. Hey, listeners, have you tried Factor yet? Remember Factor Meals? They were supposed to send me a box to try out, but they don't ship to Hawaii, so now I'm stuck with my Taco Bell. And now it's up to you. It's up to you to try it and let me know how it is, because it's May. And we can't eat like it's the holidays anymore. We're trying to get our summer bodies together. And Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting food. You can choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, whatever you want, it's here. Head to factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50, that's musicaltheater with an E-R, and use code musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code musicaltheater50 at factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. One of my favorite things in a musical, I love it in the full Monty as well, is a, is a great bad audition montage. Oh, so good. It, nothing like it to just showcase the character actors in, in the ensemble. But they end up hiring in the role of Adolf Hitler, none other than Franz Liebkin himself, right? Which brings yet another iconic line, that's our Hitler! (laughs) Um. (laughs) I love that scene, though. I love that audition scene. 
I, so they, they, they made for me a, a, a bad mismatched toupee and a, oh. and a suit that was just a little too small. Oh, yes. And every time I came out, our, our Max would just lose it. He'd be sitting at the audition <laughs> table. My goal was always to see if I could get a, a laugh on my first four words. I'd step forward and they say, uh, <laughs> Jack Lapidus, what are you going to sing? And I would go, I would like to sing. <laughs> the, most, the highest tenory voice I could do. <laughs> and if that got a laugh, it was a good audience. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Oh, my gosh. That's Just funny. the highest pitch I could reach. <laughs> we also have to mention that in the process of all of this work, it was necessary for uh, Bialystok and Bloom to find oh. themselves a secretary. Oh, yes. Right. Uh, to help around the office, and they they find it in the gorgeous long-legged legged Ula, who is Swedish, and uh, has an incredible song. If you got it flaunted, what else do we say about Ula? She's she's sexually very liberated, and it definitely gets her the job. Well, you know, uh, in, in, I think in in uh, our our nineteen sixties fantasy of Swedish women was that all they just they just wanted to. You know, have a sauna, have a sauna, and have sex. And that, was no, that if you went to Sweden, you were just getting laid all the time. That's all. There was just no no inhibitions about it. And so I think that, she embodies that, that. Interesting. Yeah. That's like that was like a '60s thing. It like was the, very the much Swedish a 60s women thing. are like down to uh, what is it? DTF all the time. Wow. Yeah, but you know, uh, uh, and again, it's it's one of those things that now people get very prickly about like oh my god this, you know well this. i mean like name one female character in the producers where the comedy or character doesn't revolve around whether or not they're sexually desirable uh the the lighting designer uh what is her name Ex- but like that's where the comedy comes from is that she's technically not right yeah surely surely what's her name markowitz surely markowitz, markowitz. Um, it's a great laugh line but it, oh, it's i so mean funny. it's clear yeah. Um, uh, the act ends with maybe one of the most brilliantly blocked musical numbers of all time, which is this little old lady land in which Susan Stroman created choreography for a chorus line of, of old ladies with their walkers. Uh, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. But the reason that they do it is because that is the, the fountain of money for, for Max. He likes to um, get with these horny old ladies and promise them uh, companionship in exchange for them investing in his musical, right? And so right. he has just uh, fully invaded Little Old Lady Land to make sure that he's raising this $2 million. And, and that's how the first act ends. It's a great ending of the first act. Well, everybody's happy. Everything's going to be fine. You've got, you got the script. You've got the, the director. you got the worst director, the worst script, the worst actors. It's all good. And, right. And they're, they're you know, uh, or they've got the money. They don't have the actors yet. And everybody's happy and singing all at the same time. It's it's like the Tonight finale in West Side Story. In the end of Act One, it's, it's exactly it's exactly the quintet, you know. <laughs> no, absolutely. Even the Book of Mormon has a first act finale like this. I mean, it's quintessential musical theater for yes. sure. Everybody's on stage. Act Two begins with like fully mounting the show. Yeah, uh, it starts with oh, uh, the auditions that that face. Oh, so, of course. Yes, the, the big, that great song. Right. The, Which isn't the story that uh, Mel Brooks, like, when he talked to Susan Stroman, like, performed that face, like, in her living room for her? 
jumping up. Uh, that's what I. Yes, I guess I, I believe he jumped on the couch and did the whole the cover. whole thing. But yeah, that's so Act amazing. Two Act Two begins. Ula has redecorated the office, painted it all white. Mm. And, uh, oh yes, of course, very yes. uh, very IKEA. Uh, very IKEA, and uh, and uh, Max goes off to put the money in the bank, and uh, they have a big love duet. And then when Max comes back, she says. She says, you're late. You have to go to auditions. Yeah, so <laughs> off they go to the auditions. Like we said, Franz is the one who gets the role of Adolf. But unfortunately, he literally breaks his leg during, yeah. a, during a song, You Never Say Good Luck on Opening Night. You say break a leg. Yeah. You say break a leg. And then Franz, unfortunately, literally breaks his leg. So it's like, who on earth is going to step in for the main role of Adolf? Never fear. It's someone even better than Franz. It's Roger Debris. Roger Debris. <laughs> and, and Springtime for Hitler, which is also from the movie, is in just even more full glorious form here in the, in the stage version. Yeah. You got, uh, you know, goose-stepping chorus boys. It's, is it goose-step? Did I make that up? No, you did, ma- get... you did not make that up. Okay. That's, that's a goose. That's a, that's a German The, the very threatening goose-step. <laughs> yes. And then Roger, of course, performs Adolf as though he's Judy Garland. Yes. And I always love when he sits down at the front of the stage like he's Judy at the palace with, like, the microphone. It's just, I, it's just I absolutely got to, brilliant. I, I, which I got to do at the Pantages Theater. My only two times playing Roger Debris, mm. our Nazi tenor, oh, my God, hilarious, hilarious person, among other things, did a great Judy Garland. So at intermission, I went, sing it to me, sing it to me. And he gave, he <laughs> gave me some, he gave me some Judy Garland tips. I said, look, I'm never going to sound like Judy Garland, but I want them to at least know what I'm trying to do. You know? <laughs> Catch the reference. So he's like, well, but by now she would have been a, you know, a couple of drinks in. <laughs> she had the whole thing planned out. And he said, it's a, it's a straight tone and a, and a fry. You know, <laughs> I was just a paper hanger. But the, my favorite advice was he said, drop a couple of the consonants out because <laughs> she's, so she's drunk. Slur. So yeah, that, yeah. there's a line where she says, got a phone call from the Reichstag, told me I was Fuhrer. So I went, got a phone call from the Reichstag, told me I was Fuhrer. <laughs> like just no, no consonants. Tony. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I, you know, it was it's like... It's all I, about tone. It's not about intelligibility. Well, also, it was never, like, in my whole career, one of the things I did not have my, on my list it was sitting on the edge of the Pantages doing an impersonation of Judy Garland. But there you have it. But there you have it. <laughs> I That's love, showbiz, kid. But I love Tony. I was furious. <laughs> That's fantastic. Now, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite moments in, like, film history is that cut to the audience just like Ooh. gobsmacked with their <laughs> mouths open like there it it's absolutely brilliant and um the fun thing about the stage version of the producers is that we are them we are actually creating <laughs> those faces while we're taking it in but i want can i just interject one other one other please s- please tribute to S- susan stroman so in the original 19 19- movie uh, with the 60s i guess there's a, a shot everyone remembers, which is the Busby Berkeley overhead shot of the people oh, marching the in the sh- in the shape yeah. of a swastika, and they were like, "Well, you know, it's on stage. We'll never be able to do that overhead shot." And Susan Stroman said, "Au contraire." <laughs> so she Bring brought in, in the mirror. a tilted mirror. It's like it's one of the most. It's like you watch that and you're like, "Oh my God, they did it!" That's <laughs> a fantastic. tilted mirror, and and we did it with, with, with. There weren't enough people, so we did it with puppets. Like each of the middle people was a real person marching. And they have these. I um, knew that. Well, that's why we have these interviews, Jeff. <laughs> um, <clears throat> they, I, 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 it was a lot of, lot of 
training to learn to work those puppets. The I'm puppets sure. were, were, they were on, on rolling racks and they had a device where when I pulled my right hand, both of the right feet kicked up and when I pulled my left hand, both of the left, so we were all goose-stepping together at the same wow. time. And it looked like, it looked like a chorus full of, full of, well, and of course, we're messages. all looking at the mirror, so we don't yeah. even notice the rolling racks. We, we fooled you. But I mean, it's a pretty, pr pretty ingenious invention and good for her for saying, nope, we have to have that. Have to yeah. have it. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. I love this song that comes after the opening night, which is Where Did We Go Right? Yeah, because they thought that they were going to have a, a flop. <laughs> you know, they, they did everything they possibly could, and yet now it's this huge smash, which means they have $2 million to pay off. Like how long would how long would Springtime for Hitler have to run in order to recoup that much money? You know, at the, at this point, it, it, I mean, that, in those days, you know, exactly. when, when, when tickets were still twelve dollars, you know, right, right, exactly. Franz comes bursting in to like their <laughs> office with a gun because, because he has realized, you know, that the, Adolf is now a laughingstock. They've disgraced Hitler. <laughs> 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 I love I love when when Max is like doesn't he say something like we're in too deep. He's, so all all along the journey Leo says, you know, I think we're getting in too deep. He goes, too oh, yeah. deep. This is nothing. I'll tell you when we're in too deep. And they're dancing on a rooftop with a Nazi and they're in in this room full of, you know, very very gay men and at every point he goes, I think we're getting in too deep. Too deep. This is nothing. So now now they're about to get shot and they're like, you remember when I told you I tell you when we're in too deep? We're in too deep. We're in too deep. That's so great. Oh, that's so fantastic. You're reminding me of all these great moments I forgot. I love that. Oh, my gosh. There's just so many great lines. Yeah. Who, who gets arrested? Everybody except Leo. Uh, right? I mean, and why, I mean, why does Leo escape? I'm trying to remember. Because he, he hides in a, in a coat on a hanger. Oh, <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> they let they let they let Roger and uh, and Carmen Gia go. They, right. Like, All right, you two can go, because and in the midst of this is another great line where they're running around getting shot at, and he says, "Darling, quick, back in the closet." Okay, they both go in the closet again, um, and uh, and then Franz decides he's going to make a run for it. So he hobbles off his one good leg, and you hear a horrible, horrible crash. That's right, and he breaks <laughs> and the, the other goes, one. the cop goes, what happens? He broke his other leg. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so then they, they, they arrest Max, who tries to pass himself off as Irish, which is <laughs> really oh fun because all the, all the cops are Irish. Are Irish, so that's yeah. not going to fly. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so, now, yes. so now Max is in prison. Leo yes. has, has, like, you know, gone to Rio with Ula. And when Max finds out about that, Max has his, you know, Rose's turn breakdown and uh, recounts the entire show. It's really, it's really amazing. Um, I've done it hundreds of times. It's we, an insane number. Since Max is in jail awaiting trial when trial finally comes, which every good musical has a courtroom scene, right? Yes, yes. Max is, is in his trial and then Leo shows up just in the nick of time to be a character witness and say that, you know, this is the only man he's ever been able to call a friend. And yeah. he sings this really charming song called Till Him. Yeah. The judge decides to, 
you know, because they're such good friends, to to <laughs> to not separate the partners, but to send them both to Sing Sing prison yeah. for five years, right? And uh, and in true you know producer fashion, once they get to Sing Sing, they write a musical called Prisoners of Love. <laughs> yeah. um, they ultimately take that to Broadway, correct? Yes. Wait, I want to give you one little tidbit because I, I oh, know please. you like these. Yeah. In the in this prison scene when they're rehearsing Prisoners of Love. Yes. One, one guy was assigned the task of singing flat. They needed one actor to sing flat so that the actors would, so that the, the prisoners would sound like not professional singers, you know. So That's one guy had to, sing, had to sing just, just under pitch, and one other guy had to go in the wrong direction in the choreography. It was very fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, great. yeah, so Prisoners of Love, as, you're, go, as you were saying, the goes to Broadway. Prisoners of Love. And it stars Roger and Ula. Like, Ula has now become... A Broadway star. Yes. <laughs> Leo and Max become the kings of Broadway. And and I love that they walk off into the sunset. Like they're uh, Rose and Albert and Bye Bye Birdie. You know what I mean? Like every little beat has some sort of echo in our musical theater canon. Oh, so yeah. I mean, they're, they're, it's iconic. And I, I just love that so much. There are so many little tributes all through the show. Uh, there, there's a little... A little bit of a tribute to Old Man River, and there's a little bit of a tribute to the opening of Chorus Line when the mm. audition start, scene starts, and you bum, hear da 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 again. You know, <laughs> but uh, one of the sweet things is that all through the show, Leo has been trying to put on the the, the hat that Max wears. He wants a hat like uh, that, and he says, "No, you can't have that until you're a producer." And at the end of the show, he hands him a hat. It's it's kind of sweet. Yeah. Now you can tell that once again, like we've said, that Mel Brooks loves musicals, but we have to shout out Thomas Meehan, who is also credited as being a co-book writer and wrote Annie. I, you know, Hairspray. Like this guy understands the structure of musical comedy and Mm got to shout him out. Uh, Did you ever meet him or do you know what he brought to the process at all? I got if to you meet. Don't, that's okay. I, I got to meet him. I I don't really know how, how much uh, he was. You know, I don't know what 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 who did what. It's hard sure, to tell. Sure. I, I just I just want I just always say that Annie is one of the most underrated. It's uh, so classic. well constructed. Yeah, it's a classic American musical, and people think, oh, it's a kids' show, but it's a classic American musical. That's a. Yeah. Don't you think, Julie? Do you like it? Do you like Annie? I love Annie. I really love Annie, and the book is so strong. It's really, really good. And I mean, the, the, really, the, really the songs, I mean, no, NYC. Charles Strauss, yeah. Oh, God. No. It's, so that's a, it's really under underappreciated for its place yeah. on the canon. But anyway. Uh, you had to, Julie, you had to have done like a child production of Annie, right? Never. No. Well, this seems criminal to not have like little Julie Garnier belting tomorrow on the it's stage. It's not too late. It's not too late. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give her a wig. Give her a I'm wig. Only five foot three. <laughs> exactly. I'm little still. Well, thank you both so much for doing this with me. I've had such an amazing time. You know, I, I think that the jury is still out as to what the future of the producers will hold because comedy changes for mm-hmm. sure and uh, sensibilities change. And And I don't know if the comedy of Mel Brooks is going to maybe go away with the boomer generation. I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I want to know what you think. Do you think that the producers has staying power as a musical and... Also, going back to your book, is there anything that you see in the culture of theater that might be changing as well? Yeah, okay. Well, I, 
you know, I, I, I always find I defer to Michael when it when it comes to comedy. He is, mm-hmm. I think, a, a genius and a master at comedy and understands the structure of it in a way that a lot of people don't. So but I feel like the producers to answer the first part of your question, the producers is such a classic form of comedy that mm. I think it's going to stand the test of time is what I'm trying mm. to say. Um, cool. Yeah. Mm. What was the second part of your question? Well, the, cult- the second was the culture. Yeah. In terms of the culture of theater, I could, because as, as comedy and, and preferences shift, do you, you know, from writing your book, do you see any parts of our theater culture shifting or changing or going somewhere else? Oh, a hundred percent. A lot of it's changing now. You know, some of it for the better, some of it not. And I think that's why we wrote the book, to kind of keep our really important traditions and uh, protocols alive and to remind mm-hmm. people that this is where we come from and this is, this is what keeps the chaos from happening. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, things are changing. Things are, it's, you know, it's, it's harder to navigate. I think also, like, you know, one of the reasons why we bought the book is it's sometimes really difficult in this day and age to talk to people about things that they're doing um, people use the word trigger a lot, and I think mm. they overuse it, mm. unfortunately. And I think a lot of people are also scared to tell people how things should be done because they don't mm. want to be misinterpreted in <clears> some <throat> way. Um, and so having the book, I think, really helps with, you know what, actually, like here, like here's a guideline here that I think is going to help everyone. So let's have this book in the dressing room or let's have this book in the green room. And that way it's not about, you know, you're doing something wrong or this is not how we do things. It's more about like, here's a, here's a guide. Here's some mentorship. I, I, uh, I, I don't think the producers is going to stand the test of time. No. Um, you don't? No. Um, I, I tend to be more along those lines think, too. I think we are, uh, we're losing a couple of things right now. One of them is nuance like the difference between an abusive director and a director you disagree with, as we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. Language you're uncomfortable with and language that's abusive. Something that harms you, something that bothers you. And I think we're, we're really losing nuance. The nuance between a character who's a racist and a piece that's racist. And I also think we're losing the sense of time travel, which is part of what we do as actors. And right now we are so zeroed in on this exact time in history where we've decided on a particular language and a set of rights and wrongs that uh, is of the moment. So I think, I think that it will become, uh, along with Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, and um, how, to a lot of, how to Succeed, and a lot of other people, because they take place at a time when the uh, races and the genders were not being acknowledged fairly and kindly. Well, let me ask you this. That's now. That's happening now, right? Yes. And especially now. But do you think down the line oh. that that might change? Like pendulum, the pendulum is swinging in a certain direction quite heavily at the moment, yes. right? Which is great. That's what that's what creates change, and we do need some change, right? Yeah. But like you said, Michael, and I'm completely in agreement with you. There are some facets of theater where we we do need to time travel, and so mm. I feel like right now. The pendulum is swinging in a certain way where that cannot happen. People mm. don't want it to happen. I think people are going to start to realize that what we do and how we say things and the scripts that are that were written in the past are actually a gift. And I'm hoping that 
it does stand the test of time and it does swing back so that people can remember that this is the kind, this kind of comedy is smart. It's mm-hmm. really smart. I used to think it was frivolous to do comedy, but uh, right after the uh, election that installed uh, the horrible Donald Trump as president, um, I was doing, and we were all heartbroken and devastated, and I was doing a farce. And the number of people who came up to the stage door in tears and thanked me, I went, this is a ministry. God help us if we stop laughing. Like, laughing is actually important. It's not just frivolous. It's not just entertainment. It's actually good for your fucking health. And I feel like part of laughing is doing the unexpected, the the forbidden, the thing that, that that is, oh, my God, I can't believe they said that. Oh, my God, they're doing a musical about Hitler. You know, whatever it is. And being able to 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 have some laughter at our own expense as a, as a species, uh, because we're, 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 if we forget that we're goofy, uh, God help us. I mean, <laughs> you know, that, that's what I'm walking away from here is the necessity of nuance, right? Yes. And, yes. and hundred percent nuance should be no surprise to people who profess to be progressive. Yes. Uh-huh. Like yeah. I, I require that of myself as someone who wants to be progressive, right? I cannot forget the nuance of it all. And while I tend to think that the argument of equal opportunity offender is a little antiquated, yeah. and oh, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. especially because it's usually used to defend comedy that is written by straight white men. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Um, even though I tend to feel that way, I also, I also have to remember that I am the person that's like, if you don't like gay marriage, then don't get gay married. So if you don't like this comedy, then don't go see it. Right. You know? And or see, or I, I see, don't, it, any, or see it anyway. <laughs> or see and, it anyway. And go but, to a gay but, wedding. But, but the point is, is like to legislate or to force culture, society to behave in one specific way because of your set of ideals, regardless of where you stand on the political spectrum, right. it lacks nuance and ultimately isn't where it's we It's not liberal. Yeah, it's not progressive, that's for sure. It's not, yeah. As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, we're on TikTok, though, to be honest, and I have been kind of saying that we are on TikTok. Yes, we are on TikTok, but it's my personal TikTok account, Jeffrey S. Parsons. However, you'll see the musical theater podcast uh, you know, photo because, let's be honest, that's what my life is all about. The best way to support the podcast is always to give us a nice review and a great rating. So uh, thank you for that in advance. And if you want to go even further, we have bonus exclusive episodes for you waiting on Patreon exclamation point that you can subscribe to for only $1. We also have our Tee Public store full of wonderful theater nerd type designs that you can put on any number of items, our profits of which are given to Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS more than anything I'm so grateful you're part of this podcasting community where we can have these great conversations. Uh, I appreciate you so much. Hey, Julia Michael, can you tell us how to follow you? And once again, how do we get your book? Sure, I can do that. Um, all of the information is on our website, thestageactorshandbook.com. There's actually a link, uh, like a page that says where to buy, and it has direct links to everywhere you can buy it. We also like to encourage people to go to their local bookshop and have them order. And we it just want to support the, it helps local the store. bookstores. Yeah, it helps yeah. the yeah. store if you have them order it. 
I uh-huh. love that. Yep. So one of our goals is that we want this book to become a part of required reading for people's curricula, um, in particular classes where they teach acting as a profession, because mm. um, this is about professional comportment and how to how to you know what to expect. So it's uh, really important to us that this gets worked into classes and syllabi of universities, high schools with that teach this kind of work. And so we have a wonderful educator page on our website, again, stage actors, the stage actors handbook.com forward slash educators with an S and you can get an e-exam free copy of the book. Um, the publisher will send it directly to you once they've um, confirmed your credentials and you can peruse the book. Our publisher also does di- uh, bulk discounts for uh, educators so you can contact them directly and get both discounts for books for your students. And we'd be happy to come to Hawaii to do a masterclass. <laughs> yes, please. Can we please come to Maui to do a masterclass for you? And then also our, our individual information, because Michael does teach incredible workshops, um, and I'm also a private voice teacher. So you can find all of those things, that information, on each of our websites. Um, which there will which be linked is- in our episode notes, but go ahead and tell them. Mine's juliegarnier.com. Very easy. G-A-R-N-Y-E, juliegarnier.com. Mr. Kostroff? MichaelKostroff.com. Amazing. <laughs> All right. Thank you both so much. I appreciate this. Uh, congratulations on the book. Thank and you. Everyone Thanks for out having there. us. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. My, my pleasure. Everyone out there, thank you for listening. And... Um, Oh, what should our tag be? Keep it gay. Hello, obviously. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.